should be on page 518 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. And read the entire chapter. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above all the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us. About his ways and we may walk in his paths for the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will mediate for many peoples and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn more come house of Jacob let's walk in the light of the Lord for you have abandoned your people. The house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east and they are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they also strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common person has been humbled and the person of importance has been brought low. But do not forgive them. Enter the rocky place and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of humanity will be brought low and the arrogance of the people will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is arrogant and haughty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he, may, that, that he may be brought low. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the delightful ships. And the pride of humanity will be humbled and the arrogance of people will be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day and the idols will completely vanish. People will go to the caves and the rocks, the holes of the ground away from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to terrify the earth. On that day, people will throw away to the moles and the bats their silver, their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they have made for themselves to worship in order to go into the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord, and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to terrify the earth. Take no account of man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Title of the message this evening is walking in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we praise you, we want your will to be done in our lives. Guide us tonight and let your spirit open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Help us, Father, to be here as humble servants of Christ that would let our hearts be examined by you, that your word would test us and try us and convict us where we need it and strengthen us where we need it and and 
break off the rough edges of our lives and and just change us and make us to be the people you want us to be. Father, let us be sure we are your people who are walking by the light of the Lord and not by our own light and not by the light of something else. Fill me tonight with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or to what you want done. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So verse 5 is like the key phrase for the chapter. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. Right In verses 1 through 4, Isaiah is given this powerful picture of the future. Something God is going to bring about at some point. Then, in response to this vision, Isaiah calls on the people to walk in the light of the Lord. Now, this idea of God showing something about the future and then telling them something about how to live now is a familiar um, it's a familiar pattern we find in Scripture. In, in the passages in the New Testament that talk about the coming of the Lord, it'll tell something about when the day of the Lord shall appear. And then it'll say, and because of that, here's how you ought to live in the here and the now. In this case, the call is to walk in the light of the Lord. Now, in the context of this passage, I think the light of the Lord here refers to the word of the Lord. Right. So you have in the end of verse two and all of verse three, the nations coming to God and they're coming to the house of God and they're coming so they can be taught his ways. They could walk in his paths. They could learn his law. And all of this would be from the word of the Lord. So I believe based upon that, what Isaiah is basically saying to them is people are one day going to come to the house of the Lord to hear the word of the Lord so they can walk in the light of the Lord. But you already have the word of the Lord. Therefore, walk in the light of the Lord that you already have. And the picture of the word of the Lord being a light for us is, of course, a familiar one. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the key truth from our key verse is this. The word of the Lord gives us light from the Lord to walk in the paths of the Lord. But the word of the Lord gives us light from the Lord so we can walk in the paths of the Lord. Now, this passage and all of the chapter, and it's a really big summary. And we won't get to dive deep into anything. There's just not time. Um, but in this passage, there are three. The Lord, the, this, in this passage, there are three ways given. The word of the Lord can be light. To help us walk in the paths of the Lord. First, we should walk in the light of the Lord's victory. The chapter does begin with this vision of what is to come. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So he's given this vision of what will happen concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now he, of course, doesn't know fully what it's talking about. But we have just come through the book of Revelation. And so we know the fulfillment of all of this is speaking about the end times. Uh, and since we've just come through Revelation, we won't again spend a lot of time in any of this. But there are three events that Isaiah predicts that will come to pass in the end, in the last days. First is the Lord reigns. But right in verse two, it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. Right. And it talks about it being basically elevated and exalted above all the other things on the earth. Right, the, the idea of the mountain of the Lord's temple being exalted is the Lord reigns and this reign will become evident to all the world. Now, as we saw in the book of Revelation, kind of repeatedly, God rules and God reigns over all things, including all earthly powers. In, 
in Revelation, we saw this idea that that all the nations of the earth and all the world leaders, they are actually the enemies of God. And without exception, they they give their allegiance to the Antichrist and begin to worship and serve and hunt the saints of God down. But. But they're ultimately defeated because the Lord reigns. So the Lord reigns. Secondly, the nations come to the Lord. The end of verse two says that all nations will stream to the house of the Lord. And many peoples will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us about his ways. We may walk in his paths for the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But the nations, there will come a day, he says, where the nations will stream to God. They will go to God so they can learn the ways of God, the paths of the Lord, the law of the Lord and the word of the Lord. And so what we see here is the nations coming to the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And it's always been a part of God's plan. And again, I don't have time to get into a deep dive of this, but that's important for us to understand. God has always been the God of the nations. He was never just the God of one particular nation. God always intended all the nations would come to him and would worship him. Of course, when we get to Revelation, we see the fulfillment of this. When the day comes and we are all there before the Lord, it won't be just any one nation. It will be people, a multitude which no one can count from all the tribes and all the peoples and all the language and all the nations standing before the Lord, worshiping him. What God? This is part of what God plans to do and what God will do and redeeming the nations. And then thirdly, the Lord's peace prevails. So the Lord reigns, the nations come to the Lord, the Lord's peace prevails. In verse 4 it says, He will judge between the nations, He will mediate for many peoples, and they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, never again will they learn war. God will ensure, because He reigns, He can do this, there will be a time... And a day when such peace will reign, there will never again be any weapon, any need for any weapons of war. Now, this doesn't refer to just weapons of war like nation against nation. I believe it refers to any sort of weapon at all. There's a parallel passage to this in the book of Micah. And in the book of Micah, God goes so far with this as to say there will not be anything in that day that will make anyone afraid. So not only will there not be a need for anti-tank missiles and F-16s, but there won't be a need for swords and knives and personal pistols as well. There won't be any any need of anything to defend ourselves because there will be no violence. There will be just perfect peace where the there, there's just no no strife, no wars, no no nothing. But this is how it will eventually be. The Lord reigns and he will ensure this comes to happen. This is what the word of the Lord has revealed to us. About what is to come. So how then should we live. In light of the fact the Lord reigns. And the Lord gives this ultimate victory. Well we should live confidently. In light of God's ultimate victory. And I think we should live confidently. I think in a lot of ways. One way. We should live confident. In our God. Right. We live in a day. Where there is much. That would try to cause us to be afraid. The news is not particularly pleasant. There's always something bad going on somewhere in the world. There's even bad going on here and around us. I saw just today news released from the liberal police department. You may have seen it. Um, they some some guy from liberal drove to somewhere in Texas 
and he picked up a 13-year-old girl. He then kidnapped her, took her to liberal, raped her, and planned to prostitute her out, but he was caught. It's liberal. I mean, that's not far away. That's the world we live in. The world we live in can very much make us afraid. But our Lord reigns, and ultimately he wins. Evil will receive several smaller victories here and now before that day. But ultimately, God wins. Ultimately, there is a victory from the Lord. And because of that, we should live confidently here. Now, part of what it means to be confident is we're not overcome with fear. I think there will probably be times in all of our lives where something makes us afraid. I don't know that we can stop that. That's like a thought going through your mind. You can't stop the thought from going through your mind, but you don't have to dwell on it. So there may well be things that happen that make us momentarily afraid. But as disciples of Jesus, we're not meant to be consistently afraid. God's word tells us we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discipline. God's word tells us that that we have not received a spirit that makes us a slave to fear. But rather we have received the spirit of adoption that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. There, we, we ought to live confidently in this world regardless of what's going on because our God reigns and our God ultimately wins the final battle. One more, and I'll just do this quickly. It can seem at times to think, man, nobody's getting saved. Right? The gospel goes forth and it's not doing any good. But the day will come. And the gospel does win. The gospel does go forth. The gospel does go and redeem people from every language and tribe and nation and tongue. The Lord reigns and He will ensure the gospel goes forth. He will ensure the gospel saves souls. He will ensure. This is a part of His victory. The redemption of the nations through faith in Jesus Christ. So we should live confident. In the gospel, the word of the Lord gives us light from the Lord to walk in the paths of this Lord. And this should lead us to live confidently in the ultimate victory of the Lord. Secondly, walk in the light of the Lord's worth. Verses six through nine. The theme in these verses is filled. Specifically, though, they are filled with all kinds of stuff, but they are empty of God. So notice in these verses what they are filled with. Verse 6. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines. They also strike bargains with the children foreigners. They are filled with occult practices. But when it talks about the influences from the east, it's talking about things like astrology which is the forecasting of earthly and human events through the observation and interpretation of the stars, the sun, the moon, and the planets. It is talking about things like necromancy, which is the practice of trying to communicate with the dead, either by summoning their spirits through visions or by raising them bodily. And this is usually done, again, to predict the future or to get some sort of insight into the present. Sorcery which is the application of beliefs, rituals, or actions employed in the belief that they can manipulate natural or supernatural beings and forces. And they've learned soothsaying from the Philistines. 
Soothsaying and divination are essentially the same thing. Soothsaying and divination are attempts to gain insight into a question or a situation by way of occultic or ritualistic means to find out from some supernatural entity that is not God, ultimately. These things are all strictly forbidden in God's Word, and yet here they are as God's people in God's land, and they are filled with these things. In verse 7 it says, The land has been filled with silver and gold. There's no end to the treasures. The land has been filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. They are filled with treasures. The land is filled with all manner of treasure, silver and gold, horses and chariot, all the things you would basically need to have a, a life of prosperity. This seems to be given at a time of great prosperity in the nation. And while the nation is financially prosperous, it, it is spiritually bankrupt. They are far from the Lord. They are seemingly like the church at Laodicea that is rich and increased in goods when it doesn't realize that in actuality they are wretched and poor and miserable and naked. Now we know that they were in this condition because they are filled with these influences from the east. And what follows is they are also filled with idolatry. Verse 8. The land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands. That which their fingers have made. The land is, is filled with idols they have made and idols they are worshipping. Idolatry is always pulled at the heart of God's people and pulled at the heart of people in general and threatened to keep people from knowing God. The great Dutch theologian James Arminius says the human mind is both inclined and fitted to devise and invent excuses, nay, even justifications for sin, particularly the sin of idolatry. This is because humans are just hardwired to worship something. People will either worship the one true God or they will worship someone else or something else. And worship of anything other than the one true God, of course, prevents us from knowing the one true God. And, and to me, this is a solid reminder to us. Being religious is not the same thing as being a disciple of Jesus. But they are also filled with shame. Verse 9 so the common person has been humbled. The person of importance has been brought low. But do not forgive them. Now this is an interesting verse. Um, there are three prevailing ideas in the commentaries I've read. I have about what it means. First, one is everyone was worshiping idols. The idea being uh, this verse pictures every person common and great bowing. That's why they've humbled themselves. They've bowed themselves before the idols which fill the land. Uh, second is the land is... The land being filled with occult practices, treasures at the expense of knowing God, and idolatry has brought them low. The idea being this verse is sort of God's or maybe Isaiah's commentary on the sins so common in the land. All of these sins had brought them low or degraded them because it was so common in the land. Third is God would humble them. And the idea being uh, this verse says while they had elevated themselves in doing these sins, the day would come when God would bring them low. While it really could be any of those, I guess, what makes the most sense to me in light of the context is these sins or the land being filled with these sins had brought them low. The land was so filled with occult practices, it wasn't just the big people, which often was the case. Instead, it was the common person, the person of importance. All people throughout the land had been taken part in these. And the land was so filled with these occult practices, with these treasures at the expense of knowing God and this idolatry 
And despite the fact that people saw them as good things, these things had not actually enriched them. Rather, they had debased them. It had brought them low and into a place where they were shameful in what they were instead of what they should have been. Now, if you remember, I called this walk in the light of the Lord's worth. And when I say that, what I'm saying is we live lives demonstrating we value the Lord over these things that are mentioned. Right? Live in light of the fact God is worth more than these things. Let me explain what I mean. Take the occult practices. Occult practices and ideas are very common in our culture. And in our culture are not in any way seen as anything bad. Or seen in any negative way at all. Right? I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago I read an article. It was an interview by an actress or with an actress named Megan Fox about a relationship with a guy who I guess is a singer named Machine Gun Kelly. And in the interview she said that their spirit guides brought them together. She also said, in some ways, their relationship was demonic. Now, in our culture, the people of our culture in general would say those two statements are either enlightened and somewhat sexy, or they are just words meant to generate a buzz. But they would say it's enlightened because talking about spirit guides, that's a very enlightened mindset to have, to believe in spirit guides, to seek them and to have them. They would say it's somewhat sexy because believing that the relationship is saying the relationship is somewhat demonic means it's maybe a little dangerous or it's a little fiery and passionate. And others in our culture would just say, again, it's just a way to generate buzz. After all, they are famous people and they need to find ways to keep people talking about them so their fame remains. Now, hopefully as disciples of Jesus, we would not find those statements to be enlightened and sexy or just words people say because... As disciples of Jesus, we have the light of God's word and and we know evil spirits are a real thing. And evil spirits really exist and they really deceive people and they really destroy people. And what to me, what is ironic about this is our belief in spirits makes us ignorant while their belief in spirits makes them enlightened. So what can happen is our fear of culture looking down on us as ignorant can tempt us to minimize, ignore, or not acknowledge supernatural things like angels and demons. When we value cultural acceptance over God, we will minimize those things, act like they're not real or they're no big deal. But if we value God over cultural acceptance, we're going to be open. We're going to be honest about the reality of supernatural things like angels and demons, not because we think it's cool, but because it's clearly spelled out and laid out in the word of the Lord. Take the idea of of treasures. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we know treasures are neither good nor bad. They're neutral. But we also know the words from of Jesus from Luke 12, who said that we are fools to be rich in worldly goods, but poor in. In our relationship with God. Now valuing God over treasures doesn't mean we take vows of poverty. But it does mean we don't allow the accumulation of treasures become as or more important than our relationship with God. When we value God over treasures, our life choices are more focused on doing things that bring glory to God and bring us closer to God. Than they are on the accumulation of wealth and stuff. Take idolatry. Idolatry is seen in many ways 
in our culture. There is idolatry of the heart. And idolatry of the heart is giving something, anything other than God first place in our hearts. Letting that thing or that person be preeminent. Now, an, an idol of the heart can be anything. It can be a person. It can be a place. It can be a thing. It can be a job. It can be stuff. It is simply whatever or whoever you and I give central place in our lives that is not Jesus. There is mental idolatry. Mental idolatry is when we build ideas about what God is like that is not consistent with who God has said He is in His Word. But we don't have to, to wonder what is God like? What, what is God's character? What is God's nature? What are God's actions? Those things have been revealed to us in His Word and in any time. We decide, well, I don't like that and I want to alter this. And I think God should be a little more like that. What we're doing is we're, we're making God less than he is and we're building an idol in our minds. This is not who God is. God is not who we create him to be. God is who he has revealed himself to be. And the third way we see idolatry in our culture is pluralistic idolatry. The, idol, the idols they built, they worship as other gods. They, they did not worship them as Yahweh. They worshiped them as Baal, as Ashtoreth, as some other god that they had heard about or they had learned about. The people had begun to accept these other gods as legitimate and real gods. This despite the fact Yahweh had told them he is God alone and there is no other. In our pluralistic society, it is a temptation to believe there are multiple gods, multiple ways to the same God or the one God called by many different names. You know, this is true according to God's word. When we value God over idolatry, we ensure Jesus is always the supreme object of devotion in our lives. We ensure we are thinking about God as he is and not as culture says he is or we may like him to be. And we ensure we are clear about the fact there is only one God and it is the God who has revealed himself in the Bible and through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, shame. Our culture has lost its ability to blush over sin because our culture doesn't see sin as shameful any longer. Rather, our culture sees most sin in all manner of positive ways. It is living by your truth. It is love is love. It is you be you. It is YOLO. You only live once. It is you deserve it. It is all manner of things. But not shameful, not sinful, not bad. Yet the reality is God's word is clear. Sin is a disgrace to any people. When we value God as we should, we see sin as shameful and as disgraceful as he says it is. The word of the Lord gives us light from the Lord to walk in the paths of the Lord. And this should lead us to live in light of the worth of of the Lord in every area of our lives. And then finally, walk in the light of the Lord's reckoning. These final verses, it's a strong warning for those who would choose to persist in their sin and rebellion. We're told in verse 12 that there is a day of reckoning coming. And on this day of reckoning, the proud will be humbled. Look at verse 11. The proud look of humanity will be brought low. 
the arrogance of the people will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. This phrase is repeated in verse 17. Verse 12 says, The Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is arrogant and haughty and against everyone who is lifted up that he, the proud, may be brought low. The one overarching sin in these verses is the sin of pride. It has been said pride is the mother of all sins that is pregnant with all the rest. In pride, Satan rebelled against the Lord because he wanted to be the Lord. Pride is the sin behind any number of other sins in our day as well. Pride is what makes people think they can continue in sin and rebellion and will escape this day of reckoning. Pride is what makes people think they will be the exception to the rule about the consequences of sin. And rebellion. Pride is what makes people think they know better than what God has revealed in His Word. And despite what the proud think, there is a day of reckoning coming, which they will be humbled and, dare I say, humiliated for their arrogance against the one true God. Not only will the proud be humbled on this day of reckoning, but wealth will be worthless. Look at verse 20. On that day, people will throw away them to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their Idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the clefts of the rocks and the crannies of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to terrify the earth. On the day of this reckoning, people are going to throw away what has been previously been so valuable and important to them. In this case, it's an idol, but notice it is specifically said it is an idol made of silver and gold. This indicates not only the idols, but the treasures themselves they were so fond of in the previous verses. They will throw them away because on the day of reckoning they realize gold and silver and any earthly treasure will not, cannot save them. It is merely a hindrance in their life. The proud will be humbled, wealth will be worthless, and the Lord alone will be exalted. It says that at the end of verse 11 and the end of verse 17, the Lord alone will be Exalted. And the idea of this is hammered in verses 13 through 16. That all things, things will be brought low. And it will be all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up. Against the oaks of Bashan. Against the lofty mountains. Against all the hills that are lifted up. Against every high tower. Against every fortified wall. Against all the ships of Tarshish. Against all the delightful ships. If you look down at verse 20. Or 19, I'm sorry. Or 18. All the idols will completely vanish. The people will go into rocks and the holes of the ground away from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to terrify the earth. The proud will be humbled. The Lord will be exalted. Everything lifted up against the Lord will be leveled and the Lord will be exalted. The idols will vanish and the Lord will be exalted. Wealth will be worthless and the Lord will be exalted. The overall picture is anything... People are filled with in this world while they're empty of God. It will not save them on the day of reckoning. Rather than save them, these things will be proven to be worthless, proven to be lies. And God alone will be exalted on this day. The word of the Lord gives us light from the Lord to walk in the paths of the Lord. And this should lead us to live in light of the reckoning of the Lord that is to come. Now, before we close, I do want to give us... Two quick ways to respond to this passage and the things we've seen. One is 
to repent were necessary. Much of this passage is a call to repentance. Right in verses 1 through 4, there is this vision of God's victorious future. And then in verse 5, the call to them to walk in the light of the Lord. Well, they're called to come and walk in the light of the Lord. Why? Because they are not walking in the light of the Lord. That's what the rest of the chapter demonstrates. They they are not walking in the light of the Lord. So they need to turn from the way they are walking and begin to walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 22. It says, take no account of man in whose breath is the in whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Right. And it's telling them to repent of trusting in man. Essentially is what it's saying. Because you think about it. All these things that are going on. They are filled with influences from the east. Where did they learn those? From people who came and taught them and said, the way of the Lord is wrong and, and this stuff is good too. Their idolatry. People taught them about these other gods. They were trusting in people teaching them this stuff. And these people were saying they were probably false prophets and any number of other things that were teaching all manner of things and they were trusting in that despite what God had said. And so God is calling on them. Why are you listening to them? Why should they be esteemed? Their life is in their nostrils. It can be taken away. So do we need to be repentant tonight? Do we need to repent of living in fear rather than living courageously, confidently in the light of God's ultimate victory? Do we need to repent of valuing things over God? Do we need to repent... Of valuing culture and people to the extent that we minimize supernatural things that people might think we're stupid for believing. Do we need to repent of valuing treasures of this world and and not valuing God as we should? Do we need to repent of maybe valuing being accepted as open-minded and tolerant? By accepting that maybe there are other gods or other ways to God. Do we need to repent of valuing other people's opinions to the point that we minimize the shamefulness of sin in a person's life? Do we need to repent of valuing things over God? Do we need to repent of living as though this life is all there is and there's not a day of reckoning coming? Do we need to repent? If so, repent. Repent where necessary and then also follow hard after Jesus. To walk in the light of the Lord, we must walk by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord all points us to Jesus. Jesus says you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now, I like this passage. Because he's talking to scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders who were basically the theological scholars of the day. New Testament is not written. It is the Old Testament. And what he's saying is the Old Testament points to me. Of course, we know the New Testament reveals him and points to him. All of Scripture ultimately points to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate point of all of Scripture. But notice what he says. It doesn't just reveal him. It urges to come to him. Right? 
these are they which testify of me, yet you're unwilling to come to me. So scripture was not only saying Jesus is the Messiah, it was saying serve him, worship him, go to him. And they were not. All of our study of God's word should push us closer to Jesus, should deepen our devotion to Jesus, should make us more faithful disciples of Jesus. Everything we read, everything we study, everything we do in this book is meant to push us more to Jesus, more to his word, more to his life and be more devoted to him. We cannot walk in the light of the Lord and in the paths of the Lord without being deeply devoted disciples of Jesus, because ultimately Jesus is the light. He is the light of the world. And if we don't follow him, we walk in darkness. But with him, we have the light of life. Now, the context of this is is neat. We're told earlier in the chapter that it is sometime in the morning. We don't know exactly when in the morning. But we know Jesus is also talking to the religious leaders at this point. So in my mind, I see like the sun coming up, just beginning to beat down on the day. And as Jesus is talking to them, he points at the sun, which is giving the light of day. And he says, I am the light of the world. There is no walking in the light of the Lord without following Jesus. And so we respond to God's word always by following hard after Jesus. So what do we need to do tonight? Must we repent? If so, repent. Must we follow harder after Jesus? If so, follow harder after Jesus. But let's not be a people who hear without doing what the word says to do. Because in the end, that is self-deception. That leads us away from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You're great and wonderful. We thank you for your word. and The sure guidance it gives to us. Help us to have eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Every time we get into it. As we study your word, help us to see how it points us to Jesus. And let us respond to that and draw closer to Christ and follow after him. Father, as we look in your word and it contradicts beliefs we have, actions we've taken, then, Father, let us repent because you are right and we are wrong. Guide us and be drawn closer to you to be more faithful, to be who you want us to be, so that as we walk in the light of the Lord, your light will shine through us and the people who are trapped in darkness can see a great light of Christ and they will be drawn to him. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.